Mike said I had to project my voice uh, because there's no sound system, but this is a small room. George Whitfield had to project his voice in the open field when he preached in England and America, sometimes up to 50,000 people in the field. And he had, he, they say you could, uh, you could hear him for a mile away, I believe. So if he could do that, I think I can project my voice to this small crowd in this small room, hopefully. Daniel chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a very interesting chapter. It is a Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of God's sovereignty. It's an experience of a pagan king who encounters the living God. And the theme is found in chapter 4, verse 25. Uh, other verses. But look at chapter 4, verse 25, the end of the last phrase in the chapter. It says, starts with the word until... Until Nebuchadnezzar, you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. What is this teaching us? It's teaching us that God is in charge and not men. And that's what we're going to learn tonight. This dream is not dated, but most think it's uh, there's a lapse of 25 or 30 years between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And it's about 30 years later. Daniel might be 45 to 50 years of age at this time. Um, but let's look at the testimony, the personal testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. In the first three verses, we have Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation. By the way, this is a decree or proclamation sent out to the entire Babylonian Empire by Nebuchadnezzar the king. A lot of critics don't like this chapter because they say, this couldn't have been part of the Bible because this is from a pagan king. This, is how, this, is, this glorifies God in a tremendous way. Verses 1 to 3, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. If you'll notice, there's a, a tie-in with the end of this chapter as well. I look at verse 34, the last part of it. A little section set off, it says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, similar to what he said earlier in the chapter. Ends that way as it, as it starts. This is the third miraculous contact of God with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the first one? It was in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream interpreted by Daniel in the interpretation. And in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar dealt with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're called in that chapter. And the incident of the fiery furnace. And God delivers them out of that. Now, God, again, contacts, comes in contact with Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter as well. Or he tells about his experience with God here. And it's, it's interesting to me. I'm, I'm, I'm struck by this fact that God continues to confront and pursue Nebuchadnezzar over and over again. That's, that's very interesting to me. And he, and he makes his power and authority known to Nebuchadnezzar in, in miraculous ways. Um, and so this is his personal testimony, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, to, the, to the entire kingdom. You know, it's, it's uh, verse 1 is just a greeting here. Uh, it's, this is a typical greeting back in that day. And he's trying to wish everybody well in the kingdom here. In verse 2, he talks about signs and wonders. That phrase, signs and wonders, is at the front of the... This is in Aramaic, which none of us have learned. But it's at the front of the sentence, they say. And, uh, it, and it, it's there because it emphasizes... Uh, it's for emphasis in that sentence. Nebuchadnezzar wants to emphasize that God has done for him great things. He's done signs and wonders for him. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wants to get across to us. That's the burden on his heart. So he talks about that. And he says in here, in verse 2, it seemed good to me to give you this information. It shows he, he wants, he desires to share all this information about God with the entire Babylonian Empire. Thus, 
he becomes a witness to the Babylonian Empire. Now, this is fascinating. Think about this for a minute. God, only God could have designed this plan. God brings four guys in from Jerusalem. Uh, Daniel, uh, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. And they start influencing the kingdom of Babylon, of all things. At this point now, Nebuchadnezzar is testifying to the, the entire empire about God. And everybody has to read this. They have to hear it in some way, however they heard it. In this vast empire, they all have to listen to this testimony about God, the true God. That's an amazing thing. Well, Nebuchadnezzar talks about the Most High God in verse 2. He says, I want to tell you about the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And this, this phrase, Most High God, is used several times in this chapter. It's found in uh, chapter 4, verse 2 here. It's found in verse 17, verse 24, verse 25, verse 32, verse 34. It, it was found in chapter 3, verse 26 as well. No other chapter in the Old Testament uses uh, the title of Most High God as much as this one. I think Most High God, is the phrase is used 14 times in the entire book of Daniel. So you can see that's a, that's a big theme there. But what does it mean? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 47, first of all. Remember Nebuchadnezzar had said this to Daniel. In 2.47, the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, and so on. Look at chapter 3, verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, God is greater than all gods. There's no one higher than he is. He's supreme. He rules. He can reveal dreams. He can deliver people from a fiery furnace. Therefore, he's the Most High God. He's greater than any other God there is. Nebuchadnezzar was coming to know God in this way. And I, I thought about this, and I wondered to myself, how are we coming to know God? Hopefully, we have a greater knowledge and understanding of God than Nebuchadnezzar had. We should know that God is the Most High God, should we not? We should know He's sovereign. We should know He's the one that's in control, that, he, that He's the one that rules and reigns. But not only academically know who God is, but in experience in your own life. Have you come to know God as you walk with Him? It says in 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in grace in what? And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we come to know God in a greater way always, and this is what we want to do. Verse 3 of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. Um, he says that, that God's kingdom is eternal. Uh, his, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He's comparing God's own rule to his. Uh, the kingdoms of men are temporal. They're uncertain. A king, well, his reign may end in death or in assassination. But God's kingdom goes on forever and ever. His dominion is from generation to generation. Nothing can end the kingdom of God. It goes on and on and on. And so that's Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation. And then in verses 4 to 18, we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It says in verse 4, in, in the first person, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing my, in my palace. He says he's at ease. He's at rest. It, it suggests that he's serene and secure and content. Uh, he's happy. Uh, it's the idea of being free from apprehension and fear. Nobody's trying to attack him. Everybody's under control in the empire. It says he's flourishing, which literally means to be growing green like a tree would. In Psalm 52, 8, it's talking about a green tree, a uh, flourishing tree. And so Nebuchadnezzar's empire was at peace. He was prosperous. Everything's going great. There's no serious opposition to him at this time or his empire. As we would say today, it's all good. Everything's going great for Nebuchadnezzar at this time. However, we have a little problem in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. You know how this guy is with his dreams. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. 
And these fantasies as, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. He used those words, I'm fearful. I was being alarmed by what I saw. There's a great contrast between verse 4 and verse 5. Dramatic contrast. Verse 4, everything's great. Kingdom's running, being run good. There's no opposition. He's at peace. He's prosperous. Kingdom's doing well. Verse 5, he's troubled. The contents of the dream trouble him once again, just like in Daniel chapter 2. Look what happens in verses 6 and 7. It talks about the inability of the wise men of Babylon once again. Verse 6 says, So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. By the way, this time, what does he do different than chapter 2? He tells them the dream. He doesn't threaten to kill them if they can't tell them the dream. He tells them the dream. Look, guys, I'm going to make it easy on you. This time, I'm going to let you know what the dream is. He lets them know they still can't figure it out. And so this gives Daniel an opportunity in verses 8 and 9. Look at this. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with the interpretation. Daniel has an opportunity. And it says in verse 8, finally Daniel came in before me. Have you noticed that Daniel's always coming in late to these things? In chapter 2, he wasn't even there. Now he comes in late to this whole thing. In chapter 3, he's not even, he's gone. Maybe he just got back from his cruise on the Mediterranean. I don't know. But he finally comes in uh, later on. No reason is given as to why. It's interesting to me, though, in the timing of God, God lets it be known that the uh, wise men of Babylon can't figure this thing out. And now Daniel comes in, and he's, the stage is set to what? To glorify God, right? And that's what happens here. God gets all the glory. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, in his polytheism, his worship of many gods, says, Belteshazzar, uh, according to the name of, he's the na named according to the name of my God. He, in, in him dwells the spirit of the holy gods. You see that? It shows that the dream, at the time of the Nebuchadnezzar's dream here, Nebuchadnezzar's what? He's still a polytheist, right? He still worships many gods. He's not a believer in the true God at all. At this time of this dream, I said he is. And so that's, that's the situation right here. And it's interesting, too, that in verse 9 it says, Belteshazzar, or Daniel, chief of the magicians. Daniel was given that job back in chapter 2, verse 48. You're going to be the head of the magicians and, and the wise men of, of uh, Babylon. And 25 or 30 years later, guess what? He's still the chief. He has done an absolutely great job for the king all these years, loyal to the king. Done a great job. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, Daniel. Isn't that strange? Daniel wasn't a polytheist. He was a worshiper of the God of heaven. And yet Nebuchadnezzar says to him, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. I think that's a rather strange statement, but it just shows you this. People who are spiritually blind don't get it, do they? They may know you're a believer, a Christian, but they don't understand what you believe necessarily. Unless God reveals it to them, the truth to them, they'll never understand it. You maybe had this. I've had this happen at work. People, your your unsaved uh, people at work that know you're a believer, and maybe you've talked to them about the Lord, or, or or they know you're a believer in some way or fashion. They want to say something nice about God, right, to make you feel good, or compliment God in some way, <laughs> or something nice about you. So they'll they'll throw a statement out there. I've had some crazy statements. One time, a boss of mine back in a company I worked for sat me down. We had a meeting about something. He says, "Mark, I, 
he started off by saying this, I know you're a religious man. <laughs> and I thought, that's what I am, a religious man, huh? I thought, no, what I really am is a sinner saved by the grace of God. That's all I am. But he didn't understand any of that. And he never got it. You know, He never understood the gospel, never understood any of that. He just was spiritually blind. So you've had that maybe happen to you. People don't understand. This is how Nebuchadnezzar thought he at this time, at this time that he's relating the story, when he, when he had, the, had the dream, he was still in this state of mind, a polytheist, didn't get it. And that's the way people are. understand that. He says to Daniel, no, I know no mystery baffles you, in verse 9. Nebuchadnezzar had proof of that, didn't he? He had proof of that in chapter 2. And, and uh, so he says this to Daniel. So we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream in verses 10 to 18. Let me just read this in verses 10 to 18 without comment. Here's the dream. Verse 10, now these were the visions in my mind, Nebuchadnezzar says, as I lay on my bed. I was looking. Behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was, foliage was, was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over the lowliest of men. This is a dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. That's his dream. Now what about the interpretation that's found in verses 19 and 27? <coughs> Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, And Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. <laughs> That's an interesting statement there. Daniel, whose name is called Belteshazzar, it says once again. It seems to be a constant reminder. Look, this is, this is Belteshazzar, but however, I want you to know I'm Daniel, the guy who worships the true God. I keep cropping up over and over again, not a worshiper of false gods. And Daniel here is appalled. He's alarmed. He's visibly shaking, shaken by what the dream meant. It, it, really, it really troubles him. And he says, my Lord, if only this dream and its interpretation apply to those that hate you. Yes. Amazing. Daniel had great respect for Nebuchadnezzar. He was always concerned about uh, he was concerned about Nebuchadnezzar. He was always looking out for his best interests. And once again, as we saw in chapter one, Daniel and his friends they show us how to live as believers in a pagan environment. They show us how to how to, to be the kind of people we should be. He respects the king, does he not? He's not antagonistic and hateful of the king and demanding his way as a as a believer in, in God. He's not doing that. He respects the king. He works diligently. 
25 or 30 years as the chief of the Babylonian wise men. This guy's got a great track record. Everybody respects or the king respects him at, at any rate. He maintains a testimony for God without what? Without being obnoxious. He still has a testimony for God consistently. He's concerned about the interest of his employer. Always. Forgive the application here. But this is how we're to be a witness to the world. We are to be loyal, are we not, to those over us, right? Not complaining, griping, uh, rebellious and all that. We are to work diligently. We are to keep a testimony for Christ with wisdom. We are to be excellent workers, excellent students, excellent employees, right? That's how we're to be. This is the way we maintain a great testimony. for. They don't understand Christ and the gospel and all. They understand one thing. Are you going to work hard for me? Are you going to do your job right? They see that, then you might have their ear. And that's what Daniel did. Look at verses 20 to 22. It says here, The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage, well, that's a tough word, foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is for you, O king, for you have become great, and grown strong, and your majesty has become great, and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. So you can see that this tree obviously represents what? Represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, right? That's what it represents. He says, and by the way, look at verse 10. He says, Nebuchadnezzar in his dream says, I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and the sight was great. Then that shows his kingdom was of supreme importance, centralized, supreme import, supremely important in that time. And then in verse 20, the kingdom became, the tree became large and grew strong, whose height reached, so far it says, Babylon, Babylonian Empire had grown and was becoming larger and stronger. And that's what it's talking about. Verse 21, uh, there's this, you know, the foliage was beautiful, it's fruit abundant, and so on. The kingdom was prosperous. And in verse 22 it says, this is you, O king, you, you are represented by this tree. And then verses 23 and 24, Daniel quotes from the dream first. Look at this. It is that, it is that, and that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven, and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. He says in verse 3, he talks about angelic watchers, a holy one. What is that? Well, that word means a wakeful one, one who is awake, and a holy one, or even a holy one. And the idea is that heavenly, these heavenly beings are awake, and they're watching over the activities of the world. And so it's thought that these are angels who are, who are being mentioned here. All, in like, all likelihood, they're in the angels of God because they're both holy, and they watch over the activities that are going on on the earth. And verse 17 says that... Uh, it says this sentence is by the decree of the angelic, angelic watchers and this decision is a command of the holy ones. So somehow the angels participated in this, in this decree to Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know what way, but it says they did. And Nebuchadnezzar's life had been observed by God, observed by the angels, and guess what? There was a decree that God was not pleased with him and is with, his, with his actions. And so he says in verse 23, chop, the tree, chop down the tree and destroy it. And so this is going to be judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 16. What kind of a judgment is it? is it? He says in verse 16, Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. 
his mind, his heart, the seat of reasoning in Nebuchadnezzar. Let it be changed and let him become like an animal, it says. He would think and behave like an animal, literally. The king uh, who ruled the world this time would think and behave like an animal. By the way, in modern times, this is actually a medical condition known as lycanthropy, believe it or not, which is people think they act like a wolf or some other kind of animal. Um, and then also, if, you know, the people that think they act like cattle would be more in line with Nebuchadnezzar. That's called boanthropy. It's actually a medical condition that exists, and it's been observed and proven that people can, can be like this. Now, I don't know if he had boanthropy or not. <laughs> I'm not saying that he did. That is a medical condition that exists. However, in some way, God was judging Nebuchadnezzar and allowing him to be to experience this insanity for a period of time because God was judging him because he was not happy with the way he was acting. Note the particulars in verse 25 or how, how he's going to act here. It says here, You'll be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. And you'll be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever, whomever he wishes. It says, first of all, he's going to be driven from mankind. He's not going to be living with people during this time period. He's not going to have a desire to live with people. He's going to be out with the animals. By the way, he's not going to be with the lions and tigers and bears, all right? He's going to be with the cattle, or else he'd be chewed alive. He's, it says here he's going to be given grass to eat like cattle. And the word grass is not just grass. It's a broad term that includes vegetables also. Now, this is interesting because you remember in Daniel 1.5, the king said, I got this particular diet I like. It's, you know, a lot of meat, pork, and <laughs> horse flesh. It's somewhat like some of our people in this particular congregation eat. And wine, right? And uh, now guess what diet he's on? He's on Daniel's diet, the no-frills diet of water and vegetables and grass. Now, Daniel didn't eat grass, probably. But nevertheless, it seems to indicate in verse 25 the king would be fed this, too. Maybe somebody, some guy came out there and fed the king. I don't know how this happened. It's very interesting here. But it says in verse 25, he would be drenched with the dew of heaven. Why? Because at night, Nebuchadnezzar would not go inside you know, the house like a man would. He stayed out in the field all night because he thought he was an animal and acted like one. So the next morning when he would wake up, guess what would happen? There would be dew all over him. Uh, the morning dew. And so... How long would this last for? Well, it says, it says here for seven periods of time, verse 25. What does that mean? <laughs> Through a series of complex and complicated reasoning, we come to the conclusion that it's probably seven years. And we'll talk about that more when we get to Daniel chapter 7. <laughs> okay, because it's very complicated at this point. But it's taken that this is generally seven years. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was in... You know in hockey how they have a penalty box? If you get fouled in hockey, you have to go in the penalty box for a couple of minutes. Normally it's two minutes for whatever foul might be. This is God's penalty box for Nebuchadnezzar. I had to work the hockey illustration somehow. <laughs> that God has got him in the penalty box for seven years. And he can't get out. There's nothing he can do about it. Foul. You did wrong, Nebuchadnezzar. Guess what? You're in the penalty box. You're in trouble now with me. Understand that this is a judgment from God upon Nebuchadnezzar. A judgment from God upon Nebuchadnezzar, however he brought it about. What's the purpose behind it? He wanted Nebuchadnezzar to realize who was boss. It was God, right? That God is the ruler of all. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was only allowed to be the king by God. Nebuchadnezzar was nobody. God picked him to be the king. 
could have been somebody else. But God allowed him to be the king. And so, that's what this whole chapter is about. God is the most high. God is supreme. God is the ruler of all. Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to learn this. I'm going to, tell, I'm going to teach you in a very tangible way. It was a very tangible lesson. Do we recognize this? Do, do you recognize this, that God is the Lord, that he's the king, that he's sovereign over all, that he rules and he reigns? He's above us. He's far above us. He's not equal with us. He's far above us. He's over us. What will God have to do to get our attention at times to show us that he is the one in charge? Hopefully, nothing like this. And I don't think it will. Well, I don't know what he'll do. I have no idea how God will work with people individually. But if we... If we know this information, then there's no reason to be filled with pride, is there ever? There's no reason to make a decision that leaves God out with your life. When you make decisions in your life, and you leave God out, and you pursue your, own, pursue your own course, that's not a person who knows that God is sovereign. A person knows who God is, that knows God is sovereign is one who lines up with God's will and says, I'm going to do your will, I'll be submissive to you, Lord. So in effect here, God was saying to Nebuchadnezzar, who do you think you are? I'm going to show you who I am, I'm God. Verse 26, <clears throat> and in that it was commanded to leave the stump at the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. When God, when, when Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses and realized that God was the boss of all things, not him, then he would be restored, right? He had to learn that heaven rules. This, this, for the first time, this phrase is mentioned in the Old Testament, and the only time in the Old Testament, I believe. Heaven here is used as a substitute for God. In other words, God rules, heaven rules, not, not earth, not men, but God rules. And uh, you'll have to learn this, Nebuchadnezzar. And so, in verse 27, Daniel gives some advice to his king his that he's loyal to. He says, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Now, usually, you know, you don't want to tell the king what to do. But Daniel did, and he had this track record with the king. And he knew him in such a way, and he did this. He said, let my advice be pleasing to you. In other words, as always, Daniel is what? He's tactful, right? He's wise in the way he handles the situation. He says, King, I've got some advice for you. Please be pleased to accept it. And how do we preach the truth? With wisdom. And that's how Daniel always acted. And here's what he says to the king. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. He says to the king, first of all, break away now from your sins. That word means to tear or break away or break off. And uh, the he this is Aramaic, as you know, and Daniel right now. The Hebrew word over in Exodus 32, 32 uh, is uh, when Aaron said to the people of Israel when they're going to make the golden calf, he said, break off your golden earrings. Tear them off your ears and give them to me. I'll make a golden calf. In other words, this is a definite breaking with sin. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, break from your sins. Stop it. Whatever sins he was guilty of, and it says he was guilty of sins, plural. And we know one sin he was guilty of was pride, right? We'll find out later on. And, and earlier, even in the book. He's guilty of pride, no doubt. And no, what, and no telling what else. Something else is, is given to us here, but there's, there's got to be a definite break from sin. How will this be accomplished? By doing righteousness, he says. By doing what is right. And then he says, and at the, end, at the next section here, break away from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Now, that's interesting. You see by this that somehow Nebuchadnezzar was not being kind to the poor people in his kingdom. He was abusing the poor in some way. Now, back in those days, kings would, and Nebuchadnezzar had major building projects going on because he was a builder. And they would use people as slaves and treat them like slaves to build their buildings. And 
they would work out in the heat of the day to the point of exhaustion, even death. They would be overworked. And so maybe that's it. No doubt that's part of it. But in some way, Nebuchadnezzar was not being merciful and kind to the poor. And you know what God says about the poor all through the Bible? He's favorable to the poor. Don't mess with the poor. Treat them kindly. And so he's talking about the poor. But in an unfortunate. So don't abuse them. And uh, possibly in some way he was abusing them. We're not told how. And so Nebuchadnezzar's got to stop being this way. Now let me ask you this question. Will Nebuchadnezzar be saved from his sins if he does this? Will he be saved, as we are in the New Testament era, if he breaks away from his sins, breaks them off by doing righteousness and, and also by showing mercy to the poor? Will that save him from his sins? Will it? No. No, because why? This is not a plan of salvation right here that he's giving. He's saying, look, Nebuchadnezzar, as you know, we're not saved by our good works. And, and Mike this morning just clearly, if you're listening, very clearly over and over again said what the gospel really is. We're justified by faith, not works. And it was a great presentation. He says, uh, and this is not a plan of salvation. We're not saved by our works. But he says, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, if you repent of, this, of your sins and start doing the right thing, you can avert judgment. You can avert this judgment of God. He'll do this. That's what I think, at least. And, of course, no doubt Nebuchadnezzar complied with this, right? Right away, Nebuchadnezzar got on his face before God and bowed and said, Yes, I will comply with the, the living God. Is that what happened? We see next, in verses 28 and 33, <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar's dream fulfilled. A dream that... He was living the dream. He's going to live the dream, but he didn't want to. It's not a dream you want to be living. Verses 28 to 33. Look at verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Unfortunately, what was promised to him came to pass. Verses 29 to 30. Why? Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, this is amazing. First of all, he's walking on his roof, which is not unusual for kings of that day to do. Remember David was on his roof? And uh, others walked, and the kings did that. That's what they did back in the day. They walked on their roof for different reasons, I guess. Um, maybe it's a way place to get away. But it says here in verse 29 that 12 months later, this is 12 months after the, the fact of, of Daniel interpreting his dream. Now, what does that tell you? God is gracious. God has given Nebuchadnezzar 12 months, 12 months, a year to repent of this sin. He's done nothing in the meantime to repent of anything. He's still the same Nebuchadnezzar. No repentance, no remorse, nothing. Still the same guy. God's long-suffering and merciful. He's warned Nebuchadnezzar, I'm warning you, I'm going to do something about this thing. You're going to be judged in a way you don't want to be judged. And he gives him a year, not a year, he gives him a year to repent. So, but no, there's no quick repentance here. He doesn't do anything at all. Look at his pride in verse 30. He says, is not this Babylon the great? Now, is that true? Yes, it is. One of the most beautiful, fantastic cities ever. Preeminent city. Uh, one of the most magnificent and all, probably the largest on earth during his time, by the way. Uh, and so it was a tremendous city. And he says here in verse 30, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself, note, note the uh, personal pronouns, I myself, for emphasis there, have built by the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty, 
He says, I did this myself. I did it myself. This is for me. It's I did I did it, and it's for me, for my glory. And it's all about what? Nebuchadnezzar, right? He says, I built all this. Now, you have to understand, the city of Babylon, there's a city called Babylon that he lived in, the, where the palace was, was absolutely amazing, as we talked about earlier in this study. It had two walls, a double wall, inner and outer wall. The, the outer wall was 21 feet thick, and the inner wall, 11, 11 feet thick. It had eight gates, which was a big thing back in those days. The biggest, the most famous one was the Ishtar Gate, which was 40 feet high. So a lot of work went into this. 53 temples in this place, 53 different gods probably. There was a bridge because it was, it was built right over the Euphrates River. Euphrates River ran right down the middle of it. And the bridge spanned 400 feet. You can get to different places in the city. It's an absolutely amazing city. Hanging gardens were there that were famous. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes on his roof, surveys the city, and says, what a great city. This is fantastic. And you know, 200 years later, Alexander the Great came through and said, man, this is a great city. I'd like to build our great area. I'd like to build, uh, have my capital here. And so he was right. It was. But what was the problem with? His problem was pride, right? And so you have judgment in verses 31 to 33. While the word was in the king's mouth, the word of pride, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. <laughs> you're, not, you're not the king anymore. And you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 33 is a summary statement here. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Fulfillment of the dream. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Leeson Archer says this, his hair became matted and coarse and looked like eagle feathers. His fingernails and toenails never cut, became like claws. You can imagine if you didn't cut or bite your fingernails or your toenails, hope you're not biting your toenails, um, they would become longer, right? And this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And I don't know all the particulars, none of us know. God did something here that was a total judgment on Nebuchadnezzar here. How ironic, right? King who thought he was so superior to everybody now is at a subhuman level, under everybody. Well, is that the end of the story? No. We have Nebuchadnezzar's restoration in verses 34 to 37. Look at verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. At the end of that period, the end of the days, literally, the fulfilled probably seven years, or whatever seven periods of time are, probably seven years. At the end of that period, this happens. And it says here, I raise my eyes toward heaven, which is a visible act of submission to God. Nebuchadnezzar, it says, my reason returned to me. In other words, God saw that Nebuchadnezzar had learned his lesson. He saw he learned his lesson, and he restored him to the kingdom. Can you imagine the shock it must have been, though, when he, his reason returns to him, and he's out there in the field, and he looks at himself, and <laughs> he's got long hair, it's all matted, his fingernails are long, his toenails are long. He looks horrible, and he thinks to himself, what in the world? His reason returns to him right there. What a shock it must have been. What a lesson he, he learned in humility, right? Sometimes God has to humble us greatly, greatly sometimes, to see who we are and who he is. And so upon his restoration, he gives God the praise, right, in verses 34 and 35. Look what he says in verse 34. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. This is a new Nebuchadnezzar right here, it looks like. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven, heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God had proven to the greatest king of the earth that I'm God and you're not. And you're, and you're being humbled. And he humbling. And notice how Nebuchadnezzar bows before the sovereignty of God. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. Who does that include? Himself, right? I'm nothing either. I know it now. Boy, he knew it. He learned a great lesson there. He says, no one can ward off his hand, which means, that phrase means to, means to strike God's hand with the intention of altering its operation. No one can alter what God wants to do. No one can thwart his purpose. No one can uh, stay his hand or, or, or divert what he wants to do. He can't do it. It's impossible. He says, he says uh, uh, no one can say to God, what have you done? No one can question what God does. Legitimately, right? What did Paul say in Romans? He says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? No one can question God legitimately and get away with it. You can question God like a fool. It's not going to do you any good. And Nebuchadnezzar now is allowed to become greater. Verse 36, at that time my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty. And surpassing greatness was added to me. God blessed him abundantly in a greater way even, right? Verse 36. Verse 37. Now I, King, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. By the way, Anderson says this title for God, the King of Heaven, is not found anywhere else in the Scriptures. He's the King of Heaven. Nebuchadnezzar came up with a lot of neat titles <laughs> that are really great, that are true of God, too. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is great. Now... Before I didn't do this, before I was a poly, I was, had this polytheistic thinking, and we'll talk about that in a second. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. These are three participles that express continuous action. He did this again and again. He continued to praise and honor and exalt the king of heaven. Not just this one time, apparently. That's what everybody thinks. It was something he continued to do. And he praises the works and the ways of God as well, right? And he learned that God hates pride. Because he says here in uh, verse 37, uh, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. All his works are true and his ways just, and he's able to humble those who walk in pride. As Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction, haughty spirit before the fall, right? He learned that God hates pride, and he learned to be a humble man before God. Let me ask you this question. Did Nebuchadnezzar become a true believer exclusively in God? Did he? It's a debate. Goes on. Let me just say this. Famous guys by the name of uh, Wood, Young, Luck, if you can believe his name is Luck. Rush Dooney and Wolver, John Wolver, believe he did become a believer. Guys like John Calvin, Kyle, famous Old Testament scholar, Archer, another famous Old Testament scholar, say no, he did not. But one thing's for sure God knows whether he's a believer or not, right? Only God knows for sure. I tend to think, after looking at this this time around, studying this, I think that, I'd like to think at least that he became a believer. Seems like he did, because he's continuing to praise God after this, after this time. And uh, he went through this great experience that no one else in the Bible went through, to be humbled by God like he, like he did. But only God knows for sure, ultimately. Towner says, chapter 4 is a story about two sovereignties. The might of the greatest of human kings, Nebuchadnezzar, versus the power of the Most High God. And the winner is 
the Most High God, right? So humble yourselves before God like Nebuchadnezzar and continue to praise and exalt and honor the King of Heaven for the rest of our days. Let's pray. Lord, you thank you for this time together and for your word, for uh, Nebuchadnezzar's experience, the lesson we can learn from it ourselves. Help us not to have to go through some horrible experience to just humble ourselves before you today, tonight. But help us to walk in humility and not pride. Put away pride. Do the things that are right, be kind to people. And-